This is the Talk Editions podcast, episode 35 with Michelle Liu. Talk will be premiering Michelle's piece, In a Forest, on night two of Swoonfest, our 10th anniversary celebratory festival, May 5th and 6th at the Clemente. For more information, visit talkensemble.com slash swoonfest. Michelle Liu composes mainly in the realm of electroacoustic music, both in hardware and in computer-based forms. She has also created large-scale sound installations, which are often performative and collaborative. She performs and improvises on acoustic and electric bass, electric guitar, and on laptop and various electronics. As both composer and performer, her collaborations include with Rage Thornbones, Weston Olenke, Maddie Barbier, Ultrasoft, which is a modular synthesizer trio, Jonathan Piper in Go By Land, and Shy Bather. Her work has been presented at a whole host of festivals, including Wien Modern, Danau Eschinger Musiktage, Darmstadt Ferienkurse, Budenzer Tage Zeitgemäße Musik, Ultima Festival in Oslo, Chance and Circumstance, Merz Musik, and many more. Michelle was a Fulbright Fellow at the UDK in Graz, a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard University, and an Elliott Carter Rome Prize Fellow at the American Academy in Rome. She is currently on faculty at UC San Diego. TAC will be premiering a new piece by Michelle called A Forest as part of Swoonfest on May 6th at the Clemente. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for making me speak a lot of German. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Madison, that was excellent German. We yeah, should maybe also introduce the, yeah. we should introduce ourselves. Um, I'm Marina Kifferstein, violinist of TAC. I'm Madison Greenstone, clarinetist of TAC. Welcome, Michelle. And thank you so much for that introduction. So, Michelle, um, you're going to be uh, featured on Swoonfest, which just for anyone listening, Swoonfest is uh, Talk's 10th anniversary uh, two-day festival that we're holding on May 5th and 6th at the Clemente, which is a venue in Lower Manhattan. Um, you can find more information about the full lineup at talkensemble.com slash swoonfest. Um, but Michelle, we're really excited to perform A Forest, and we have the music for it. Um we haven't heard the electronics yet at this point when we were recording. So I think it's going to be like a very different piece um, than, you know, kind of what we, we did like a, an acoustic read down. Um, but I'm super excited to hear it with the electronics. Do you want to maybe just start off by telling us a little bit about the piece and kind of what your process has been working on it? Yeah. Um, so I... I don't write for voice very often, so I wanted to start off by trying to find a text that I could treat. Um, and it took a very long time because I was trying to find poems or, you know, texts where people are like describing their dreams and um, just to find some something, right, to kind of like ground the piece in. And it just took so long. So I decided to write my own text. And uh, which feels a little bit weird because I don't really consider myself um, a poet or a writer. And so then from there, I felt like then I could start the piece because it's sort of like creating this this kind of uh, buildup, right? The piece, it doesn't really feature her until the very end. So kind of giving away one of the like secrets of the piece. Um, but the text I wrote is this very um, mournful, piece that's got this great sense of loss to it but also maybe something that has some hope in the end that sounds so cheesy but but yeah so that's uh that's there's a kind of a build up to that moment and the electronics yeah it's i'm still kind of struggling to finish right now unfortunately but yeah the um there's like um there's going to be an eight channel system where Six of the channels are going to feature this kind of spatialized digital forest. Uh, yeah, kind of is building this sense of uh, synthetic space. And so to, you know, sort of try to match that timbre, um, the ensemble is going to be treated with a bit of uh, downsampling in the uh, live processing. So some like some bit crushing. Could you just um, explain what downsampling is and also bit crushing? It just like decreases the uh, bit depth. Um, and it creates a kind of distortion, but also can like mimic 
uh, like older devices and stuff, cool. older digital devices. And, uh, and then it just kind of moves through these different spaces, right? There, there's going to be these samples that kind of move throughout the space that's uh, with the speakers surrounding the audience. And then the ensembles processed live with just the two speakers on the stage. So there's this kind of sense of hopefully this, you know, this kind of, uh, yeah, this invention of an audio space for the, for the listener. That's yeah. Both, both organic and synthetic and digital. Um, when you're talking about like downsampling, um, and you know, like you have such a varied electronics practice and like a varied sort of perspective on the use of electronics in your work. Um, yeah, hearing you talk about that reminded me of the piece that, or a piece that we worked on together, um, Worrell, which, you know, involved like processing the contrabass clarinet through like an iPhone and an iPad and just like these funny like voice fx uh apps that you could just like download for a couple of dollars um and like the point wasn't that it was like processing perfectly and like you're getting this super clear like audio signal but that like the magnet like the hugeness of the contra and the sound was like deliberately creating weird like artifacts with the electronics where like things were failing and interfering in ways that like produced some other artifact mm -hmm. um and i'm yeah i'm just wondering if like that's that kind of ethos is going to be part of a forest and then also if you could like speak a little bit about like yeah like your view about like the failure of or like pushing technology to the point where it's like oh it's kind of failing or like it's revealing these inherent artifacts mm -hmm. or you know electronics that are like homemade or sort of faulty or yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, I am interested in that, you know, cause we always think of like, you know, the computer is this very um, precise machine that, that can pretty much do what we want it to and has this kind of predictability to it. But what's interesting to me yeah, is this kind of sense of failure of the, um, I guess the, the process trying to kind of like be, be faithful to the signal or to, to uh, the, the kind of processing that kind of, um, that kind of reveals these the 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 inability for it to really track, you know, in a faithful way, and and so yeah, there's a lot of speculative speculative things happening um, with this kind of downsampling, um, kind of degrading the quality of the of the signal, but also then there's these parts where there's um, there's going to be these octave shifts that are like going to shift the whole uh, ensemble an octave down or two octaves down. I have no idea what that's going to sound like. That's so cool. It might, it might not work. I'm not sure. I have, <laughs> as, like, as a violinist, I have such bass envy. Like I always wish that I could, and I have like a reasonably high speaking and singing voice as well. So I'm like, I just want that like bass, like Barry White energy in my life. And like, I wish <laughs> that I could like produce sounds like that. So I, I'm very excited about this octave shifting yeah i'm hoping that works and so the you know the electronics are going to be kind of yeah the like processing is treated performatively mm -hmm. um and then there's also going to be on the on the singer on her voice there's going to be convolution reverb which is where you know you take the impulse response of something and then you try to you know create this this artificial resonance with the um whatever the thing you're treating it the live signal and it can create these very like otherworldly shimmering kind of digital uh, effects on the voice um especially when the resonances are in, in the same frequency range so i'm really hoping that that also really kind of transforms her voice in a way where she can maybe play with it as well so my understanding is that downsampling is like taking something that's like kind of high resolution audio and like turning like processing it so that it becomes low resolution or like yeah, kind of like exactly right yeah. um and so when you're doing that you're like it's like taking a if you think about like an image it's like taking a super high res image and like pixelating it or something right yep yeah yeah so i mean it's i think it's a really interesting process and um 
there yeah something that i i really like about your music like you do a lot of stuff with um like when i first i think the first time i ever saw you lie like I, I ever met you was you were performing um in like a analog synth band oh, um, you were there at that show yeah i was there <laughs> yeah and and that was really cool and i was and i actually at that point like had seen a little bit of analog synth stuff but i feel like that was like I don't know everybody was like doing analogs and stuff for like i feel like there was like five years when like every show i went to was like analog synths were going on and for some reason i like haven't seen that quite as frequently since then maybe people yeah, just, are like when it's like people it got yeah it became really hip and then maybe people got really sick of that That's yeah that kind of like hipness but also it's just very expensive it's expensive and you have to like to get into like the deeper you get into it too you keep like building out your yeah, uh, it's it's an, it becomes an addiction. Up. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm super into it. I think it's really cool. But something that I really like about like that kind of aesthetic is you can get super complex sounds out of it, but like the actual technology is like pretty basic processes that you're performing, right? Like most of the time. I mean, I guess it depends on what. Yeah, you mean by complicated. Sure. Um, I think, yeah, there's way more flexible with the computer with, uh, like live circuits and stuff. You are just, you know, I mean, you just, you just plug a lot of things into each other and that gets very complex. Um, but yeah, like the cool thing about it being hardware is that you can, you can, you know, it feels tactile. You can, yeah. you can kind of see what is going in where and what's being, um, you know, what kind of LFO is doing what to what and, uh, um, but yeah, but with a computer, you can actually then, you know, you can, there's also another way to visualize it. Cause then you can see, you can actually like see the waveforms and stuff. What software too. do you use when you do like digital processing? So usually, you know, I've, I've used Max for a while, but I've just been having, I've been wanting to switch to super collider because I feel like it might be a more stable system. And also I like, I think I might like the code based language better. Mm-hmm. So this piece will feature um, Super Collider. Is this and... your first piece using Super Collider? Yeah. That's so exciting. So Yay. we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of strike me as like a technological polyglot or like like you're fluent in like all of these different kinds of technologies. No, I, I feel know. like I'm just hacking it all together, to be honest. Maybe that's what everybody feels like. Though. Yeah. I mean, there is, like, in your work, like, a really, I don't want to say, like, self-conscious, but, like, a very sort of, like, placed feel of it being, like, DIY, like, super DIY, especially, like, even when, you know, you're working with these sort of, like, professionalized sound technologies or, like, highly, like, highly complex, precise sound technologies, but in conjunction with things that are lo-fi or analog um like the use of transducers or the use of um recording on tape like within a piece and then playing it back like i know like one of your most kind of well-known or iconic pieces untitled three-part construction involves like taping a large part of the piece like on a cassette player and then play like starting to play it back and like messing with the actual recording of the performance as it's going on um as a way of kind of creating analog like very very diy feedback within the system mm -hmm. yeah i think that a lot of uh the tools i work with just kind of started off as being something that was more practical you know just uh not having like the resources or um yeah for a long time i was just kind of uh, free floating and so just trying to figure out or like working with certain ensembles that didn't want to work with live electronics in that way, like with the computer or like having projects where there was no guarantee that there would be any kind of tech support. Right. It kind of started off like that. And then it kind of grew, the aesthetic kind of grew out of just working with these, these um, little objects, these electronic objects. And yeah, the same with like the, um, the iPads and the Bluetooth speakers. It was like a similar kind of concern, which then kind of, yeah, interestingly formed a body of work. 
yeah and it's like it's it's really cool because it makes it in some ways like very accessible like your music like it makes the performance of your music and the presentation of your music very accessible to people who might not have extremely refined like technological chops like you know like you think of honey dripper or you know some of some of these pieces that require really really massive investments of time and resources and just like hanging in on the practice of the electronics um that you know invite for it to become personalized in this really really amazing way and also it, it kind of invites one to consider like the composition you know not only is like the, the the score the notes on the page whatever but as like the actual instrumental composite itself like building out a sort of setup like an electronic setup whatever that the the piece the performance is kind of like latent or inherent within that setup in a really fascinating way mm -hmm. yeah there's because you see all the cables and all of these things yeah, you, you get that sense of like the physicality of the, I mean, if that makes any sense, because it's still electronic, well, you know, whatever, it's kind of invisible, but it's also not. Um, and then with, yeah, with any kind of computer stuff, it's all like in this black box. Yeah. And you do see some cables, but you don't see like the, the boxes or the devices and, or hear it, you know, hearing sound being produced from them. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because I go back and forth, you know, because yeah, those pieces that require so much, um, gear you know you have to have i mean i provide a lot of the gear to performers or the performers have to be willing to you know have to purchase all of it and that's kind of a lot and like if you work so if you're working with friends or people who are down then that's great but um if you're working with ensembles that that you don't know and there's just this long process of like familiarizing yourself with the volatility of these kinds of like hardware systems and um, so people just, yeah, it, it ends up being this thing where can't I have to be a little more flexible with what I'm doing. But also, yeah, with, with just focusing on the computer for this piece, I was hoping that it would just kind of streamline a lot of these concerns of like rehearsal time and having to like plug in a lot of things that might break. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, so it's more portable in a way. For example, like with telegrams, you know, like assuming someone has an iPhone, which, you know, can't always be taken for granted or an iPad, which can't always be taken for granted. The electronic processing doesn't rely on like an array of pedals with a very specific signal flow or whatever, but just on these like funny consumer apps that are like kind of like toys, like a vocoder toy, you, mm -hmm. know, where you know, you sing into it. And it's like, ah, like the setting's called like uh, olive oil or Popeye yeah. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that creates like a really fascinating like entrance point into your music and one that it's like, okay, like there is a bit of an assumption about like what kind of technology is ubiquitous. And that changes also like if you wait 10 years, you might not yeah, be I mean, able to so play that piece those... anymore because that oh, app sure. doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> already, it's already happened because yeah. um, that app doesn't ex doesn't really exist anymore. It doesn't you work. You like SX. can't update your operating system. You like have to keep a yeah. like oh, an yeah. iPhone six on hand or whatever. I mean, there's plenty of there's plenty of my friends who have not updated their computers just so they can have all of their old stuff still working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I did a recent show with Stefan Meyer and. I couldn't get my old Max patch to run on my new computer. So I just pulled out my 2011 laptop and, and did it. But it was, you know, it was always kind of sketchy because I wasn't sure if that, that computer would survive this set. Um, yeah. So there's like, yeah. The last time that this computer will ever be able to do this thing. <laughs> so then it's like thinking about having multiple computers, one where it's kind of frozen in time and it can run all of it, all of your things. Or, you know, there's all this, you can like spend a lot of time trying to update all of your things too. Yeah. So another reason why I was thinking about moving to Super Collider because maybe it doesn't change as quickly as Max does. Um, but if I were maybe a better coder, I could just not have things that break. Or you know, um, but yeah, for sure that 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 voice effects app doesn't exist anymore. So I'm probably going to be in the process of um, having to make a new my own custom version of that 
so it can still be performed. But also, like, you know, I never, like, make pieces assuming that they'll be performed again or, like, you know, in, you know, five years later and stuff. So that's, like, a new phenomenon for me. Right. Yeah, there's something you're interested in, like, uh, like, artistically, are you... It sounds like that hasn't historically been something that you're interested in, like having a, like a, a futurity or like a, a life, yeah, you know? Yeah, because I always end up choosing the strangest instrumentation or the strangest kinds of very specific um, objects or electronic, you know, devices that, um, yeah, I guess that's more important to me. I mean, I'm potentially going to do this big thing and it's going to have the most um, the most idiosyncratic instrumentation that probably won't be replicated ever again. So that's, I'm that? fine with that. It's going to have, you know, like multiple accordions and electric guitars and like lots of low, uh, like contraforte and contrabass, two contrabass clarinets. And Wait, what's a contraforte? Contraforte is like, a, it's a, kind of a new version of a contrabass cl- uh, bassoon. Contribution. That's cool. But supposedly it's more flexible. Like it can do a lot more than the classical contrabassoon. So it's like a fairly new invention, I think, in the 20th century. Um, and so you can find more multiphonics on it. And but it's yeah, it's definitely kind of a rare thing right now. I think they're very expensive. Yeah. That's what is the ensemble that you're writing that for? So ensemble collective in Berlin. Okay. And they just happen to have all those instruments as part of their roster. So you're like, yeah. Let's yeah. They, Cause you know, they're like multiple um, ensembles in Berlin and then they, they like fuse together like Voltron and become <laughs> one giant ensemble, <laughs> but they don't do a lot of things very often. Um, and then they have a roster of like freelance people that they could draw from. Yeah. That's really, really cool. I mean, it, yeah. All this is making me think about, maybe this is a bit redundant but just like the like the possibility in your pieces to get into these like hyper specialized or like hyper specific zones like there is a really interesting like sometimes like an openness or fluidity but then like all the pieces of yours i've encountered have like left a space open for people to like really really tailor it to their own where it becomes like in a way irreplicable but in that irreplicability it's like it's personal but then opens up the possibility for multiple iterations of like what that personal is yeah Uh, i mean thanks for saying that i have yeah um there is an openness in the notation and in the way that you can this kind of haptic feedback or whatever that you have from the electronics and uh and so, but I have like, you know, witnessed that, like, you know, you, you brought up Untitled Three-Part Construction and how it's been, it's actually been performed by a lot of different people. And of course, like the very first performance, you kind of hear that as the, uh, as the one, right? Um, but it's kind of impossible for people to, to, to try to play it in the way that the, the other, you know, person did, because um, then it's just an affectation and it's not as effective or, um it doesn't have the right kind of energy to it i mean it also this also makes me think of a piece you made for yarn wire i don't which i don't know if it's been performed a second time um where you have like and and i don't want to like spoil or do a big reveal but there's like this animatronic puppet or this like mechanized puppet that's involved in the performance in like a really kind of absurd and sort of disturbing way. So maybe this is like more of a pivot, but like, I, f- I feel like in your work, there's definitely, definitely like a place for the absurd and place in a place where things like don't have a logical derivative or like a logical causality, but they just sort of like happen. And you're like, wow, that totally shifts my understanding of like what the scope or like what the meaning of this piece is in like a radical way. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I, um, I think that like, yeah, putting interventions into your work is like, yeah, definitely a strategy for shifting. It's the piece, what you thought the piece was about and hopefully like it then just adds more dimensionality to it. Um, 
but yeah, the absurd is totally fine with me. I mean, like not the, that piece was, I felt like it was a huge risk because I don't, I, I don't feel comfortable like doing things that are theatrical because I don't feel like I'd have any, um, have any real like deep thoughts about it, you know? Um, but it was like this moment where I was really getting sick of my own work and it was just a way to kind of try to try to do something that that had a lot of like for me personally risk to it and played with these ideas of like acousmatic listening and um you know because the tiger is like shrouded for most of the piece and then the percussionists dramatically walk over and like pull pull the veil open and you can you know you've been hearing it's wooden feet walking throughout the entire piece and yeah it's it's bizarre and um of course like when that moment happened during that performance everyone whipped out their phones and started like (laughs) videoing it um but yeah it doesn't really make sense and it's totally fine but it's like still important to kind of build up whatever the framework for that to still somehow make sense within the context of the piece even if it's such a surprise, if that makes any sense. And then like the human mind will just sort of like, like the proclivity of the mind is to like fabricate some sort of like meaning or connection, even if there isn't particularly one engineered in there, like deliberately. Like, so it's also the sort of like psychological trick. Yeah. But yeah, no, that piece hopefully will get performed again. I just, I need to um, get the electronics remade. (laughs) <laughs> Jurassic technology. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting though to think like talking about technology and it and it becoming broken or uh just what is the word like just outdated and and like thinking of this idea of like permanence or or like leaving something behind, you know. Yeah. And I think about like the old school way of thinking about composing is this kind of whole idea of like leaving a legacy behind, you know, like, I don't know how many like young composers get into composing with that kind of maybe not conscious thought, but you know, that their music might survive like beyond their own, their mortal selves. Mm -hmm. Is that like one way of hoping that you build a kind of sense of permanence yeah, but when you're working with, like impermanent materials and materials that like become obsolete or that can be broken, like you know, you think about like the David Tudor archives and like all these instruments that he built that like aren't being played or are broken or people like don't know. Like, there, I mean, there's this massive like cataloging effort and like a continual massive musicological effort, but like just the fact of like identifying the instruments being like wait how was he using this i feel like it's a little bit of a yeah and it's like yeah yeah, it's kind of it's interesting because like there's this whole area of musicology and like performance practice around like early music but i wonder like what that i mean we're already as like what you're saying about like david tudor that's like not very distant in the past you know um but it's like, yeah, what like what what will those efforts look like to kind of reproduce like music that that had a performance practice based on a technology that like no longer exists or like mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. But I mean now it's different because we have so much more documentation than obviously like we didn't have audio and video documentation from like centuries ago. So, but it's like, there's not documentation of every, of every performance or like of every piece. So. I know that makes me think of how like, you know, when you're in undergrad music history or music theory classes and you hear all these like stories and anecdotes that that probably just got twisted and distorted over time. Cause there's, cause it is just this like, hundred years of playing telephone with that yeah. whole the story of like yeah. um Beethoven's six premiere being a complete disaster because they just you know they didn't think that a lot of that stuff was playable so they're just intentionally like fucking it up because they're like well Beethoven can't hear it anyway like you know that's a story <laughs> that you hear 
or like um you know how louis like stomped uh the staff on his foot and he died of cancer you know like these yeah. are just these <laughs> there's like something fun about that of these stories like or like lore. you know yeah. Yeah, like Morton Feldman tripping on stage, you know, after a piece of his, you know, going up on stage to bow and he tripped and fell, you know, things like that. But if we have everything that's like documented, um, it's no more, I mean, can we still, you know, create these stories, these sort of mythical stories around events or people? I mean, probably, yeah, because not like everything's documented. I mean, I don't, I don't personally care about I mean, I want my pieces to be documented, but I don't really care about like living on, living beyond my, you know, my mortal self. What do you see as the function of documenting your pieces? Just so that I can like um, try to assess if what I was trying to do was, you know, did the things I was hoping it would do. That's like instructional for your continuing development. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course it helps with the whole like career thing, you know, just like, yeah, current applications, evidence that you're doing things. um, And also audience, you know, like, yeah. Expanding your audience. Might be, yeah. Just people are like genuinely into the music and they're like oh sweet this new release like this new video just dropped Whatever. yeah yeah i mean i i got off of, <laughs> i got off of social media so i don't really know anymore i feel like i'm there's this whole big blind spot now maybe maybe not um i don't know if i really need it in my life but like i would admit that when i when i was on facebook i could see that like a lot of the, the enthusiasm this the enthusiasm around my music kind of like helped was like maybe Facebook posts and all that stuff and the sharing of some of this, you know, these, these videos or audio really did have an effect. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, it's like, maybe it's one of those things that like, isn't a necessary evil or something. Um, But, you know, but I do love recorded music. Like I, I do, of course, put things out there in the hopes that there's some, it finds some resonance with some people, you know? I always have this, like, fear of appearing uh, to, um, like, that these are kind of, like, vanity projects or something. Mm-hmm. But it really is, like, about, you know, participating in a community. And I know that word community has just been kind of overused, but just participation, I guess. Like, connecting with people and yeah like community as as like communication and like having like lines of communication with people who like maybe you don't even know personally Mm -hmm. but like broadening that by like yeah extending extending a hand like show you know sharing your music kind of I, I think that like for me one of the main reasons why I'm into documentation it's not this kind of like oh so people can like study you know talk ensemble in 50 years or something like it's like we can't perform everywhere like it'd be great if we could but like sometimes there's music that we play that I'm like this is really good I would like to like be able to share this more broadly you know um and that's something that that documentation you know makes possible Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting too, because like, you know, recording albums and stuff like that, because you can't really own, I mean, it's not, maybe, maybe people are buying CDs and stuff again, but this, I feel like when people buy music, it's kind of has a different, or maybe it's a different, but the same kind of like, um, I don't know, desire or something. I feel like people buying music within the like, experimental music scene is like a like a political action it's like a decision to to pay for something that you don't have to pay for most of the time Mm -hmm. like usually you can just stream the albums whenever you want it's free but it's like if you're choosing to buy Mm -hmm. an album you're like I want to support this artist I think that it's messed up that you know that that people can like put so much energy and produce something so awesome and like lose money on it instead of you know like 
have to like invest their own personal resources in that so I don't know like for me when I buy albums I'm like that's kind of where I'm coming from because mm-hmm. I don't I mean and I, I don't buy hard copies of anything because I don't have a cd player it's like <laughs> I know they're kind of like objects right with the whole cassette tape thing yeah. too you're kind of buying them as yeah as a as a sign of support and yeah. also as like this kind of cool object to have yeah um like thinking about kind of going back a little bit um like thinking about this sense of community and like um participating in communication michelle i know like teaching is a huge part of your practice and that you're like a very um beloved and enthusiastic teacher and i was just (laughs) i mean it's true like okay like i just i talked to some people from ucsd a couple like a week ago or something at Seamus and they were like, we love Michelle. We're so happy she's here. And just like, oh, nice. So wherever you've been at like, um, you're at Seamus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like all the students love you, you know, all, not all, I mean, can't, can't well, whatever <laughs> you can't win them all. No, but I was, I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about like the role of the role of teaching like and I know you teach a lot at summer courses too and um yeah this is something you've been engaged with for a really long time yeah I mean I I do get a lot out of it because um there's just it's really you know it's really challenging there's there's just a diversity of interests and um and ways of thinking about you know music or or artistic practice and and it just I feel like it keeps my uh, mind <laughs> like young and flexible and I have to, you know, kind of try to understand where they're coming from and, and, and then just try to encourage them to, you know, ask the right, ask questions. I don't know if I have to say the right questions. What does that mean? But you know, to, <laughs> to be able to ask, uh, be, you know, be critical in a, in a productive way. And um, yeah. And then I end up, you know, like, a lot of them just become my friends and colleagues and it just, it helps to just feel like we're really just a part of something that matters um, because the rest of the world does not think that this matters. So it's just, you know, when I was studying with um, Haya Charanen and Stephen Takasugi, you know, I would go over to their house and we, it was always one of the most amazing things was they always created this atmosphere of this, this music being the most important thing in the world. And um, I think it's just, um, I just want to kind of try to recreate that with my, um, when I'm working with students, just, just to make them feel like that this is really, this does really matter, whatever it is you're doing. I want to push that for a second, because I just had this conversation with someone recently about like, things mattering um and music mattering and stuff and like i i think music like and and make you know the music that we make like matters on like a a deep and eternal kind of level but like i don't know what do you when you say that like it matters like what do you mean by that Yeah, I, I mean, like, oh, it's so easy to just kind of say that nothing matters. And it kind of feels like that in like current day politics. Um, but just, you know, art or an aesthetic experience um, is, is a way to try to touch the unknowable, right? Mm-hmm. It's a way to kind of get to a place or have momentary space or experience that is, um, that you're trying to get to that unmediated space. Of course, it's everything's mediated by like your personal history and by every, the framing of the event and culture and all that stuff. But I feel like with music, it's like, has this power to try to like get us to this kind of, um, yeah, that ineffable space, which just sounds pretty cheesy, but I feel like that is kind of, that has been, you know, what music has served. Mm. Even like maybe potential. Well, you know, it's also has been um, something that's been used as a control or something to control uh, society. Um, 
or to kind of like as a propaganda i don't know now i'm kind of going down the deep end but you know if music kind of like used to serve a religion more of like a religious function and then we're thinking about music now as a tool that we use as as something that's like kind of additional to our lives or something that's like in a, a way of enriching our time um like how do we how do we value it or evaluate it mm-hmm. and and so like i think it matters you know people can say whatever they want about academic composition and institutional stuff but i think the core hopefully the core value is questioning everything that is sort of that is just we're inheriting right all these value systems and so kind of questioning it through music is maybe one way of of hopefully thinking about broader things and it's it's interesting because okay like I completely agree with you and that's the kind of music that I'm drawn to as well is music that like that questions everything that you kind of just take for granted like that yeah when you were talking about like the the reveal of the tiger and recontextualizing everything that you've been hearing until that moment like these kinds of yeah these kinds of of like constructions I think can be super interesting um I don't I also think though that like music that doesn't question ever doesn't question anything can be like really can like matter you know like I I don't know I think there's like so many different ways that music can can be valuable but um, totally yeah it's a I guess if it's just sort of like if you're doing it as a as a if you know if you're in a PhD program um and just kind of making music that's just like um doesn't question beauty or things like that um then I don't know why you're in a PhD this is bad (laughs) yeah teaching mission statement right there (laughs) add that to your UCSD bio yeah no, no, like music can do a lot of things. Um, and, but I think it is all about transportation, right. Of the body into a disembodied state maybe. And there are different ways of doing that. And there's sometimes you just want to, there's just be numbed out or Mm -hmm. sometimes you want to hear something that like, you know, has forces a specific emotion on you. Um, or like makes you feel nostalgia or makes you feel comfortable or like, yeah, but it, it's like kind of invoking like a, a kind of focus that like takes you out of the rest of like the way that you might be experiencing the world when you're not listening to that piece. Yeah. And, and just kind of like going back to like what, like going back to that, you know, making it matter is that, you know, experimental music matters because it it's hard for it to function within, you know, the, the main, the main world populace, whatever, like within the market, within, um, it's, you know, it's always struggling to, to exist, especially outside of institutions. Mm. So it's like easy to write music that can do the easy things of, you know, yeah. It sounds like music, <laughs> but um, because then you can may- maybe like yeah get more traction. People might more people might like it. That's really the wrong. Um, I think that's the wrong agenda. If you're pursuing more of a uh, a research space in music or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like what you're describing um, is like the practice of music like whether that be through composition or performing or studying or like uh improvising whatever all any of those combined in any configuration um listening going to events like has a probing quality and like is a way of probing um what one's like probing an understanding of the world you know, an mm-hmm. understanding of one's own, um, like circumstances of like what it means to be alive, kind of. 
even like not even just in like a sort of placed historical moment but as like like a human you know and so like the practice of music or the experience of music it, it's like it can be like a mode or like a crucible of understanding that isn't that doesn't have like a fixed angle but is a kind of like refining and renewing process of taking like taking stock about what is <laughs> i don't know maybe that sounds unhinged but that's kind of like it yeah my impression it's yeah it's trying to kind of reach the sublime or or this um and then you know through that kind of process of having an experience and then kind of like reassessing it it does yeah kind of potentially bring you back into your into yourself into your and and how you kind of engage with with how you find value in the world well yeah i feel like we took this crazy <laughs> tangent drop. that mic is, drop you know well, is there is there anything that you want to plug like anything you have coming up that um that you want us to like tell our listeners about uh well swoon fest there's swoon fest um i i guess i do have an uh an album coming out on carrier records which cool. is the two versions of honey dripper one by maddie barbier that we had recorded several years ago in this um, big space called human resources in los angeles it uh I think it used to be a movie theater in Chinatown-ish area, and um, they converted into this gallery. So it's this kind of big uh, rectangular kind of concrete space. So it has this, uh, we recorded in there because we wanted to just have that natural kind of uh, re reverb in that. And so you can really hear it. And then, um, so that is previ previously unreleased. And then this, the version that Weston um, did was, also several years ago, but at a gallery in Santa Cruz. And that one, um, Weston's remixed and kind of made it way more intense. Okay. And so that's, that's coming out. Um, so it's going to be both month. versions on the same. Album. Yeah. Both versions really on cool. the same album. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's coming out on cassette tape. I don't, you know, who, ha who has cassette tape players? I do. <laughs> I, have a, I have a bunch, but, um, it sounds really great actually on, on tape. Um, but it's also of course available on digital. And so that's, that's, uh, I want to plug that and that's about it. Well, when is that coming out? It's actually up on uh band camp now, but the tape, uh, the tape isn't going to be shipping until like, um, sometime in May. Cool. So the official release date is like May 4th or 5th, I think. Um, well, we can link to that in the show notes um and yeah we're really excited to see you at swoon fest yeah thanks so much i'm excited too yeah we're so stoked bye michelle bye, michelle. bye. Thank, you. thank you this episode was produced by Madison Greenstone, Charlotte Mundy, and me, Marina Kipperstein, and it was edited by me. The music that you're listening to right now, as well as at the beginning of the episode, are excerpts from a live recording of Different Furs, a piece that Michelle wrote for Yarnwire. You can hear Michelle's new piece for talk at Swoonfest on May 6th at the Clemente. More information? visit www.talkensemble.com slash swoonfest. The link is in the show notes. If you like the Talk Editions podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. We really appreciate your help in getting the word out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>